The RTS London Podcast. You may be wondering, in fact I've been wondering myself, why the august and distinguished Royal Television Society should ask Esther Ranson, she of the funny-shaped parsnips, the dog who said sausages, to give this Christmas lecture. Well, the RTS has been very kind to me in the past. I was once one of your promising newcomers. I think I was, it was me and Peter Jay sharing that one. Even more kindly, some years later, you actually gave me your Judges Award for Journalism. I do hope I thanked you properly. Anyway, I was really grateful. And I'm also extremely grateful for this honour, although I'm not sure why you chose me until I remembered how old I am. I don't always remember that because, dear young RTS members, whatever your actual date of birth might say, inside your mind, your heart, your memory, you get stuck at whatever is your favourite age. Mine is 28, which was the age I first started to appear on a Saturday night consumer programme called Braden's Week. But I have to face the truth, I'm not 28. In fact, I'm nearly 28 backwards, 82. So perhaps it's my antiquity. At this time when antiques and repair shops are so popular, that qualifies me for this privilege. Because it certainly means that I've survived decades of change in our industry, more than 50 years. Indeed, I've been working for the BBC, first in the wireless, then in television, since 1965. More by luck than talent, I was one of the first women producer-presenters. I was there when some of the glass ceilings were broken through. In fact, some of the fragments are still stuck in my skull. So, what was the world like in broadcasting back then? And how much has it changed? Well, in those days, sorry, I start too many sentences that way, so I'll try and ration myself. As I was saying, in those days, the BBC used to recruit straight from Oxbridge. Nadine would definitely not approve. I applied when I was at Oxford for a general traineeship, which I didn't get. But years later, I did nick a news trainee to make him a researcher on That's Life. I think his name was Peter Basiljet. Whatever happened to him? I did, however, get a job as a studio manager in radio. I think Baroness Bakewell also started there. I know Biddy Baxter of Blue Peter fame did, and that's how I joined the BBC. Well, we female studio managers were browsed upon in those pre-Me Too days by directors and actors and contributors. It wasn't violent or frightening. One just brushed them off like midges or occasionally let one settle on you and bite. Which does remind me, when I worked in Bush House, I do remember one of my colleagues was bitten by a Brazilian in a lift. But that never happened to me. I ended up working in radio drama. And although it was very exciting to make spot effects next to Dame Edith Evans in the radio version of Romeo and Juliet, and actually to make the sound effect of Juliet dying by falling onto a plank, after a couple of years I realised the bruises were overwhelming the fun of the job, and I left. And I was unemployed for six months. It was horrible, but very educational. I've never forgotten it. But then I got into BBC television by nefarious means that Nadine would not approve of either, because I rang up a friend I'd known at Oxford, asked if I could have an interview with his mother. 
She was Joanna Spicer. Now, when the story of women in broadcasting is written, and please hurry up, someone, because we may all have fallen off our perches quite soon, I do hope they pay tribute to Mrs. Spicer. She was the assistant controller of programme planning, and she was the most senior woman in BBC television. Grace Wyndham Goldie had been the most senior woman. She was in television's current affairs department. She discovered and promoted the bright young men like Paul Fox and Ned Sherin and Alistair Milne. But she was a dragon and a misogynist. Yes, ladies, women can be misogynist. She was implacably opposed to women appearing on the screen, especially women reading the news, because she said they lacked authority. And under her rule, although women were employed as secretaries and researchers, they were rarely, if ever, promoted to become producers. But Mrs Spicer was the exact opposite. She ran a one-woman undercover operation to find talented women and introduce them into the BBC. I think she got Margaret Jay in that way, Baroness Jay. She certainly got me in, recruiting me as a clerk in the Eurovision department, where I managed to bring all broadcasting across Europe to a complete halt. But that is a story for another time. I already knew that television was where I wanted to work because it was so exciting, so fascinating, much as I loved and still love the wireless. But a friend had allowed me to visit some control galleries. I remember watching Duncan Wood, who was the director of Steptoe and Son, lining up every shot, so brilliantly composed. When I was producing, I used to tell our directors I, I worked with that every single shot has to be exactly right to tell the story. A careless shot conveys to the viewer that the programme maker doesn't care, so why should the viewer? Anyway, that friend, Colin Sharman, worked in light entertainment. And there, there was only one woman producer, Yvonne Littlewood. No other women were allowed on any production teams because, it was said, they'd be offended by all the bad language. When I started to appear as a reporter on Braden's Week, I remember Colin Charman telling me that I was the only woman on television that didn't annoy his wife. I said to him, we were in the BBC club, a terribly unhealthy institution where staff were actually allowed to have a drink together, wouldn't be allowed today. Anyway, I said to Colin, suppose a man were to walk into the club wearing only a tiny leopard skin thong and stand there saying nothing but flexing his muscles. Wouldn't that annoy you? Because that's how women were used in entertainment shows, wearing as little as possible and saying even less. So there I was another evening in 1965 in the BBC club in Television Centre when a friend said, Ned Sherin, he who discovered David Frost, John Bird and Eleanor Braun, Ned Sherin's looking for a researcher. She said he'd asked her to join his team for his last satire programme, but she had just been promoted into obituaries, she said, and so didn't want to take the demotion. I remember not being able to believe that she'd just turned down what seemed to me to be the dream job. So I asked her to repeat what she'd said. You always know when you hear something that could be your big break, don't you? That is what I heard. So I dashed upstairs to the office, wrote a letter to Ned. My cousin Roger was about to collect me for the rehearsal of a pantomime I'd written for our synagogue. 
Actually, that isn't normally part of Jewish ritual, even for liberal Jews like me. But anyway, I asked Roger to do a detour to Lime Grove. Do you remember Lime Grove? To deliver the letter. And I explained to Roger that this would be my big break. And then I went on to the synagogue to rehearse Roger as the pantomime dame. Very kind-hearted, my cousin Roger. So I then prepared myself for a grueling interview with Ned. But turns out some of his team knew me from Oxford anyway. Sorry, Nadine, where I'd done a bit of writing and performing, and I suppose they told him to employ me. Anyway, he took Mrs. Spicer out to lunch. She was very fond of Ned. He was very fond of her. And he asked her to release me. And as I had already, as I mentioned, brought broadcasting across Europe to a grinding halt, she was quite relieved to say goodbye. Here's the thing. I had fallen on my feet. Ned Sherin was not a misogynist, far from it. People who like strong women and aren't afraid of them are glorious to work for, be they men or women. Ned had worked with another dragon lady, Carol Brahms, for years, and he turned out to be the perfect boss. He got very bored if I knew what I was doing. He constantly pushed me way beyond my comfort zone, as his researcher. I remember once I had to read 86 volumes of Hansard to investigate an MP and then had to report back to Ned that there wasn't a story. He taught me so much. And when he left the BBC to make feature films, he gave me a glowing report to help me on my way. And that's what he did because after he left, I went on working for various programmes within current affairs, but only as my gender dictated, as a researcher, never considered for promotion. One of the brilliant young men at that time, programme editor Derek Amor, explained to me the problem I had, which was anatomical. He said, and you'll have to forgive me if his words offend anyone, but I do remember what he said verbatim. Your problem is, Esther, that I like working with people with bits that stick out, and I don't understand people with holes. Pretty memorable, you must agree. So when Ned left, praising my work as a researcher, the only job Derek could think of for someone with my anatomy was filing 23,000 black and white photographs. That took me three months. I would be doing it still if Derek had his way. I remember he used, to, he used to balance an aerosol can on top of the filing cabinets I sat next to and practice target shooting at them. I was so furious with him that I was determined not to flinch no matter how close the pellets came. But although Derek told me that my role on his programme could only be filing the photographs, I was actually rescued by Tony Whitby, who was his deputy. That was around 1966. And even back then, there were men in the BBC who actually liked talented women. Minorities, of course, always depend upon the tolerance of the majority. And men, obviously, were by far the majority in broadcasting. So I was very lucky indeed to work for Tony Whitby, who really did mentor women. It was no coincidence that he himself was married to a strong, clever woman, the editor of Woman's Hour, Joy Whitby. Tony saw me huddled next to the filing cabinets, try not to flinch, and he told Derek he needed me to work alongside him 
copy tasting and so on. Well, pretty soon he got me writing scripts and jokes and even once a song for the nightly show. But still, I was refused promotion to the next rung up from researcher, which would have been trainee directors. Women's role in television were as handmaidens. We made the tea, the coffee, typed the letters, made the research calls, but never directed a crew. A lot of cameramen, we were told, would resent being asked to work for a woman. And of course, there were no camera women. So there I was stuck, until I went from current affairs, male, macho, misogynist, to a totally different culture, features department run by Desmond Wilcox. And Desmond was gender blind. Now, you may think that description a bit odd, coming from someone he married. And in our private life, I admit he did recognise that I am female. But in work terms, it was true. When it came to promoting talent, he was completely gender blind. Talented women from all over the BBC sought refuge in his department, where at last they could work on equal terms and were given the opportunities they deserved. For example, the BAFTA-winning documentary producer Jenny Barraclough, the author and reporter Angela Huth, and many others. It is interesting that at a time when there were no women reporters on Panorama, Desmond employed Angela Huth and Jan Lachard and Gillian Strickland. And the documentaries he made in his award-winning pioneering series Man Alive were very different from the issue-driven topics dealt with in current affairs because Desmond brought into television the first-hand experiences of ordinary people. Up until then, the professional etiquette, especially in the BBC, had been to interview experts. If you wanted to understand homelessness, you'd go and talk to a social anthropologist, not to a homeless person. But Desmond came from Hugh Cudlip's Daily Mirror, and he knew that journalism entails knocking on doors and uncovering what people are really experiencing. Desmond's films for This Week and Man Alive contain a unique archive of what it actually felt like to live in the 60s and onwards. So maybe someone would like to find those documentaries and put them together to show current historians and audiences what that unique period was like. Anyway, there was me jumping from misogynist current affairs to inclusive features group. And because I was not just a researcher for Desmond, but he did make me a trainee director, I was sent to the BBC's training school. And there, I had the privilege of being trained in the BBC by some of the real greats in television. Sir Hugh Weldon, for instance. Sir Hugh taught us two crucial rules for all programme makers, which I believe still apply. Firstly, he said, always assume your viewers have maximum intelligence and minimum information. Meaning, as Gogglebox proves every week, viewers are incredibly bright. Don't underestimate them. They will always sniff out hypocrisy and contradictions. However, they may not always have the facts that you take for granted and assume everybody else knows, so do explain yourself. Secondly, said Sir Hugh Weldon in 1966, all programme making is storytelling. 
And that is as true as ever it was. So I would like to divert for a moment from my personal history of being 50 years as a woman in television to grumble. After all, at my age, you'd expect me to grumble, wouldn't you? So here it is. I think far too many of today's presenters and interviewers forget it's the story that's crucial. They need to concentrate on telling the story, not on themselves. Because if you only think about how you look, how you sound, how graceful, how agile you are, that will become a huge barrier between you and your viewer. And it also frequently means that you will become profoundly irritating. It really isn't clever to shriek, twinkle, squirm, pretend to be fluffy, stupid. Please, please don't do that. Nor is it great interviewing to ask the same question 12 times. Three times? Yes. 12 times? No. Now, of course, I have enormous regard for Jeremy Paxman. And you remember he interviewed Michael Howard when Mr. Howard was Home Secretary and asked him 12 times if he had threatened to overrule an official in the Home Office. Paxo won a BAFTA for that question. And although, of course, he deserved the award, I disagree about the question. Not because when I was foolishly standing as an independent candidate for Luton South in the 2010 general election, Jeremy's first question to me on Newsnight was, why should anyone vote for a clapped-out ex-television presenter? And he had a point, because they didn't. No, I forgive him that. In fact, I quite like having been paxoed on my CV. It's because I prefer the scalpel to the club. And in any case, that 12 times question didn't work. The club failed to extract the facts. I suppose Paxo would counter by saying that politicians always obfuscate, wriggle, do anything to avoid telling the truth, so you have to club them over the head verbally to get anywhere near it. And I read that the next item in the programme wasn't ready, so that was another reason he asked the same question 12 times, just to fill the time. And it does make extraordinary television to watch each time Howard faffing and twisting and turning without answering. He's later explained that was because he couldn't remember the answer. The event about the overruling had happened two years previously. He'd been busy all day. He hadn't checked the diary or his paperwork. The answer he should have given was no, he hadn't overruled. But because Paxman asked the same question 12 times, everyone assumes, wrongly, that Michael Howard was avoiding saying yes. So was that such a great question after all? something a little gentler might have enabled Howard to admit that he'd forgotten and move on. Women like Michelle Hussain and Sue McGregor show the devastating accuracy of the scalpel in interviewers, not because they are weak and feminine, but because they reach the truth. Well, back in 1966, I wasn't yet a reporter myself. I did appear once on television because... I was asked to take part in a viewer's discussion about whether a woman could ever read the news. And I remember someone else on the panel, a woman, saying, never, 
because she felt that women lacked authority. Now, she was a nurse, so I asked if her matron lacked authority. It is extraordinary, isn't it, that at that time, news was an entirely male preserve because the official news review in the BBC was that women are too frivolous to read serious stuff or, alternatively, too emotional and they'd burst into tears if they were telling a sad story. It took another 15 years before Angela Rippon read the BBC News in 1975, followed by Anna Ford on ITN in 1978. But it would be interesting to see what would happen to the news on television here if all the women were to be removed from their jobs. But with the Taliban ruling in Afghanistan and fewer and fewer women journalists able to continue working there, it behoves us not to be too complacent. So I started working as a reporter on my first consumer programme, which was Braden's Week, in 1968. And a couple of years later, I remember meeting one of the producers on Tomorrow's World, the weekly science programme, and he said to me, we're looking for a woman who could present our show. Do you know anyone? Well, obviously, I knew a great many women, but I wondered what kind of woman he had in mind. Maybe a scientist or someone with acting or teaching skills. He said, well, we certainly don't want an Esther Ranson. I said, I can understand that, but which particular aspect of Esther Ranson did they want to avoid? He said, well, the trouble is, Esther, whenever I see you on the screen, I'm aware you're a woman. I pointed out that whenever I saw Richard Baker on the screen, I was aware he was a man. But I decided not to put any of my female friends forward just in case he noticed they were all women. Between the series of Braden's Week, I began to work on the daily early evening news programme Nationwide. Alongside the male presenters, there was one vacancy filled by a circling trio of women, Sue Lawley and a lovely lady from Norfolk whose name sadly escapes me, and me, a sort of nationwide harem. The nationwide editor, Michael Bunce, asked me if there was any particular film I'd like to make for the programme, so I asked if they would perhaps send me to Belfast to report on the troubles in Northern Ireland. He said he'd need time to think about that. And then he rang me back and said, the thing is, Esther, what would you wear? It was such a serious dilemma, he decided I couldn't film there after all. You'll understand this was 10 years before Kate Aidy showed nobody cared what she was wearing. All they cared about was her courage and skill under fire. Braden's Week, Bernard Braden's consumer programme, was where, in 1968, I cut my teeth as a presenter. My teeth being the stuff of many pantomime jokes. For 21 years, I was known as Toothy Esther Ranson. Then I became veteran Esther Ranson. And recently, I was greeted in a shop by someone who said, Hello, I'm old enough to remember who you once were. Then, in 1973, Bernie decided to go to make his programme in Canada, and we replaced it with That's Life, which I produced and presented for 21 years. Looking back now 
at the fantastic opportunities I was offered from then on, I only have one regret. Not about something I did, but about something I didn't do. Something I was too scared to do. I sometimes wonder whether the glass ceiling that we women complain about can be self-induced by our own built-in fear of failure. I think men tend to bluff and then catch up. And women, or at any rate women of my generation, tend to be so aware of their own lack of experience they can be afraid of reaching out of their comfort zone. During my career, I sabotaged myself once to my great regret. Bill Cotton invited me to apply for the job of controller of BBC One. I might have been the first woman controller of that channel. I turned him down out of fear, fear that I would fail. I knew it was a huge job, very time consuming. I knew it would mean I couldn't any longer chair Childline. My husband told me I would miss that and I would miss program making because I'd certainly also have had to abandon my first baby, that's life. And in the series that followed me turning down that offer, we investigated on that's life, a school called Crookham Court, which was owned by a paedophile who employed paedophile teachers. So it was an important series, but all the same, the main reason, the one I didn't admit to, was fear of failure on my part. What a wimp. Today's women are much braver. In my time in broadcasting, we've had two women prime ministers, several women television controllers, and I predict that James Bond's daughter is being raised to replace him. So are there still barriers impeding women in broadcasting? Well, of course, there is still the question of equal pay. We do seem to be getting there. And I sometimes question the assumption that if women are paid less than men, it's always because of sexism. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's because they aren't quite such good broadcasters. Sometimes they could even be boring. But ask Anne Robinson or ask Claudia if they're paid less. It can be market value. A friend asked me recently when I worked for the BBC and the programme That's Life was the most popular programme in the charts, if I had equal pay at the time. I said, no. She said, was I paid much less? I said, no, much more. These days, thank goodness, programmes do look very different. No self-respecting producer or editor would think of creating a program without women in it and ethnic minorities and people with disabilities and every sexual taste and size and shape. Just have a look at Naked Attraction if you doubt me. Although I'm still waiting for my invitation to the celebrity version of that. Do you think they'll ever dare expose little old naked ladies like me? Maybe they're right, not to go quite that far. To look on the bright side, we old women have progressed a bit, just a little bit, in this ageist country. 
Thankfully, we are no longer expected always to be prim and proper. Look at Miriam Margulies. In fact, one reason she's so hilarious is that she may seem like a dear little old lady with her mop of silver hair and her cultured Oxford voice, but then she rolls her eyes and tells you one of her filthy stories. As a friend of hers, I am thrilled that she's been discovered to be a brilliant documentary maker. Fabulous. But you still won't find a woman over the age of 60 reading the news. So that's still a barrier to cross. The only genuinely inclusive programme when it comes to booking older women is eggheads because it needs their brains. And even then, when the BBC decided to axe that programme, they said, bless their hearts for admitting it so unashamedly, that it was because the audience was too old. Ah. Are women listened to when they speak out? Now, here I venture into controversy. Take the story of Diana, Princess of Wales, and the Panorama interview. Much has been said about Martin Bashir's dishonest way of gaining access and persuading the princess to take part, faking a bank account and so on. And, of course, we rightly question how he got away with it. Where was the Panorama editor, Steve Hewlett, and so on. But I'm concerned now about the way Princess Diana has been portrayed as having such fragile mental health that she told Martin Bashir things she would never have said if he hadn't frightened her into it. I don't believe that is the case. I am sure that the incessant intrusion into her private life did damage her and did traumatise her sons, but I'm also sure that when she gave that interview, she knew what she was doing because she'd already said those things in the book she dictated three years before the Panorama interview. I believe she was absolutely determined to tell her side of the story. Against, for instance, the advice I know she was given by her friend Clive James. So isn't it gaslighting to brand her fears as fantasy, because it was true, not paranoid fantasy, that she was constantly hunted down by paparazzi, that her phones were tapped. The mystery of the squidgy gate tapes has never been solved. Who recorded her telephone calls? Who replayed them in the public arena? Who really killed Princess Diana? It wasn't Martin Bashir that she was desperately trying to escape from when she died. It was the world's press who gathered around her body as she was dying in the crashed car. We have to learn from that tragic death. And to me, as a woman, Diana is still the victim of the sexism and prejudice that means what she actually said about her life is being dismissed. And there are now attempts to lock away that interview which she was determined to give. In our haste to blame Martin Bashir, let's not silence the princess this long after her tragic death. Diana, like many women in public life, was, in my view, the victim of bad journalism. But like you, I definitely worry about protecting good journalism 
And for me, the answer lies in real inclusiveness. I have told you my story about being a woman in television over the past for 50 years more. It's a story with what looks like a happy ending so far. But if you look around, there are other women around the world who are still being silenced or are being silenced once again, and not just women. There are many politicians who are being gagged. There are victims of abuse and crime who are forced to stay silent with no way of telling the truth. There are disabled people and minorities who are being denied a voice. The good thing is that so many of us now have phones these days with the means to film and record what is really happening. Of course, that's how we know about George Floyd's death. With CCTV and body cams and cameras on cars and in police stations, let's hope in time cameras in our courts too will make truth readily available. And the internet has wonderful strengths, for example, identifying the Novichok killers. But the downside is that on the internet, myths and lies swirl around, picked up, relayed, amplified. And it seems we're discovering new technical ways to fake images and voices so we can change and distort the truth. We have got to demand protection against these lies. We've got to make sure that journalism hangs on to ethical standards. We must find ways to detect and prohibit attempts to fudge the truth. Except that maybe we should invent a new filter on cameras to eradicate wrinkles. That will do wonders for old ladies on our screens. Maybe then they'll be allowed to read the news. Thank you. <coughs> thank you, thank you, uh, Esther, for a lovely, uh, reminiscent and funny and uh, everything we'd expect of you. Thank you so much. And here she is. Good evening, Esther. Evening, evening, Paul. Esther, there was so much to, to pick out from, from that, but I'd like to start with one particular story, which I'm not sure has been in the public domain until tonight, but funnily enough, I had heard it before, uh, your story of Bill offering you the controllership. That's not been generally discussed, I don't think. Did you think it was a public uh, knowledge? Didn't think no. so, no. Didn't think so. Well, I was, I was fascinated because, as you know, Esther, Bill was a, my mentor, but we became a great personal friend. And he actually told me that story at one point. And he said to me, I was so disappointed when she, when she said no. And he said, I couldn't decide. She told me that she'd have to give up so much of her other activity, not just that's life, but she'd have to give up so much of her off-camera activity. But he said, I suspect it was also to do with the fact that she just didn't feel it would be a workable, friendly environment. Um, now, having gone through that experience, Esther, you've been around a couple of times over the past, what, 20, 30 years, where the DG has been up for grabs uh, and has been quite an open competition. There's not been an obvious successor and sort of uh, uh, applications have been invited. Have you ever had a conversation? Have you ever been tempted? Uh, no, I, um, uh, I did think very, very deeply when Bill made that amazing offer to me. And 
the truth is that when I went to his office to give him my decision, I had two letters in my handbag and I did oh. not know which one I was going to pull you out. Had the yes and the no. A yes and a no. One of them said, how lovely, thank you so much. And the other one said, how kind, but no. And I put my hand in that handbag and I pulled out that, how kind, but no. Um, I think, um, actually, uh, I think Desmond was right about me, that I love the stuff of programme making. I love the immediate communication with viewers. I love the challenge of getting the story right. And I realised that although, of course, it's a terribly important job being a commissioner, it is at one remove from the people who are actually involved in the situation. And it would, it would have been a heck of a wrench to give up Childline and to give up That's Life. And I'm not sure that getting all that power and influence would have made up for it. I'm not sure. And also, you know, it occurs to me, it hasn't occurred to me recently, that there are some people who are very good performers, communicators, who should never go into management. Because yeah. management means that you've got to see whether someone two doors down is having a party against the rules, doesn't it? It means that you've got to make sure that you are following the rather annoying, detailed regulations that you're imposing uh, wherever you have your power and influence. And that isn't the same as delivering a wonderful speech or being a terrific communicator. Now, I'm not saying I have the skill to make a wonderful speech, and I'm not saying that I'm a wonderful communicator, but I do but think you are. they are two let's different be clear, worlds. You are. No, no, I'm you are. Let's be clear. Um, it's funny you should talk about this in the context of Bill, because of course Bill was absolutely that, wasn't he? He was a program maker. He, he came up through the business with his dad, uh, and yet he was the most wonderful manager. And that's maybe one thing I was sorry that I heard you'd said no, because as a program maker, it's so lovely when you've got a boss who understands what you're about and is not a management guru or a a scheduling girl or a financialist. So some you go to Bill and say, Bill, I can't. Dusty Springfield won't come out of the dressing room. What can I do? And and Bill will be the right person to ask. Yeah, but you see, in those days, and we must, Paul, not continually sprinkle our conversation was in those days. But in those days, there were program makers all the way up yeah. the corporation yeah. and. You know, if you were, I remember Bill and Desmond had their conversations in which Bill would accept various uh, program ideas from Desmond and turn others down. But in the end, he would trust Desmond because Desmond was a documentary filmmaker and therefore trusted his taste and judgment and his capacity to tell the potential of an idea. And I think there was, I mean, all the layers of management now in television everywhere all you're not a servant of two masters you're a, a servant of 102 masters and, and i'm so glad i'm not pitching anymore Esther, because you know pitching well, to one are. person is bad enough pitching to a committee is a nightmare I've, I've got to tell you he told me another story about desmond 
because of course Desmond being a head of department he used to have his seasonal meeting with the controller of BBC One where he'd go yeah. in and say these are my ideas for autumn or whatever it might be and he told me at one time Desmond had come in with rather a large number of ideas and Bill said well there's too many here and Desmond said no you pick which ones you like and Bill said to him it doesn't matter what I like Desmond which programs do you want to make and I thought that was uh, and Desmond said okay I'll go away and come back to you with the ones I want to do. Well, that's it. And Desmond told me that story too. And that was the kind <laughs> of trust and that was the kind of personal commissioning. Um, you know, I, I agree with you. I still pitch ideas from time to time. And the difficulty is that the person you're pitching it to is worried about the next person up the line and yeah. then the next person beyond that. And it's, I mean, I had situations where the person I'm talking to genuinely feels it's an idea that should be accepted that program should be made but you know three floors up or wherever they live um they would constantly try to second guess not only their own boss but their boss's boss well and it's, now and the it's situation much less personal i think it, well it's now the situation and I, I did see this before i retired really where you're not pitching to the person who's going to make the decision so you pitch a program, that program will then be pitched by somebody else, the intermediary. So how can that anyway? Look, we mustn't go on about, about the good old days. And um, when are we going to get a female DG? We've got a female boss at Channel 4. Uh, we've had female controllers. You say we've got a Charlotte Moore in a very, very senior position at the BBC. Uh, when are we going to get a female DG? Um, when the right person comes along, because I think we will really be liberated, emancipated on equal terms when we don't care what gender or sex or whatever you want to call it, it is, when we're just saying this is the right person for the job. And it will happen. There's no question it will happen because there are so many gifted women going up through the ranks, learning the trade. Um, and, I, and I hope, I hope, I hope that the first female DJ, uh, DG turns out to be a, an, a wonderful success. Because you're um, here to that. So let's take a current position that, that we're all watching with interest. Who would you pick to succeed Andrew Mark? Pretty active. Field. I would There's pick a lot of names. Michelle Hussain. Me, because? I would pick her. I heard her this morning. Um, gently, gently dissecting the Secretary of State for Health until he was in pieces around her. Um, she does, she's, uh, I, she's interviewed me. I was astonished by her clarity, her precision. She's never rude. She's never bullying. She, she doesn't interrupt, though she slides her next question in. I think she's terrific and I'd love to see her doing the job. I'm interested in that as well, Esther, because um, we are living in a different world now. And the, if you like the Piers Morgan approach uh, to, to interviewing politicians and, you, you know, not to asking the prime minister to stop talking and, and so on. And yet you're dealing, I have to say, at the moment, particularly with politicians who just barefaced lie to you the whole time. So it's quite difficult. I mean, I think in Robin Day's day, the assumption was your interlocutor was vaguely telling the truth. Whereas now you're dealing with people who are either prevaricating very obviously or just downright not telling the truth. I don't, it seems to me the dialogue's decayed somewhat and it's just confrontational and unenlightening at the moment. Well, 
as I say, this morning was a perfect example of um, of, of of what was to me a superb, supremely good um, political interview. And if you think back to David Frost, um, who I don't think has ever really been replaced, um, he was able to get to the truth. He I think David Mellor said he beguiled politicians into saying far more than they ever intended to do. And well, I just think that interrupting and shouting and contradicting doesn't really, really get to where you want to be, which is your politician really sharing with you um, the reality of the decision making. Well, but, you know, look, it is true. Of course, it's true that politicians now get drilled into the message and they have to be on message and that's what one the best politicians i'm again you know i'm afraid harking but if you if you take someone like kenneth clark who was never afraid of expressing a very very unpopular view i mean i remember him describing doctors as feeling their wallets in a way that got him into hellish trouble but he never actually bothered with the message he always just hit the point i mean he he, he said he gave his view without fear or favour. But I still think, I still think that, you know, clubbing your interviewee into the ground is not going to make your interviewee. Well, you always said, when the sun shines, the man takes his coat off. When the cold wind blows, he wraps it more tightly around him. That's what and certain, said. Certainly not nowadays, Esther, where the, the style has become that. So they go on expecting to be lambasted and they, they react accordingly. Uh, the Frost thing is very interesting, isn't it? Because possibly the most revealing political moment in interview of the last century is, of course, the Nixon. And he absolutely does not hit him at any point. He just says, would you like to apply? Is there anything you'd like to say? to?" And Nixon suddenly opens up and it's a just absolutely magical piece of television. Now, yeah, talking about Frost, uh, I yep. want to know, Esther, and I didn't, this is one I didn't get on the gossip at the time. Were you ever invited to be uh, amongst the famous five? Or could you have been a famous six when, when Breakfast Telly 2 a.m. opened up? <laughs> yeah, I haven't talked about that either. Yes, I was. I was <laughs> I indeed one of the been. famous six. Yeah, yeah, I was one of the famous six. And um, here's what happened. At the beginning, when we were recruited, it was... Um, uh, Peter Jay and Frosty said to me that um, I could do breakfast television on ITV and continue with That's Life. That's Life, as I've said to you, was my first baby. But then when they won the franchise, um, actually, um, they were told that the famous six had to be exclusive to them. And so Peter Jay came back to me and said, you'd have to give up That's Life. Well, that wasn't part of the deal. And uh, I discussed it with Desmond. And obviously, um, in those days, it looked as if there was, there was much more money involved. You know, you, were, you had shares and things. Ooh. But it was, in the end, I, I couldn't do it. So I did a terrible thing. I um, used my son as an excuse because I just got pregnant with my third baby. And when Peter Jay said, well, how are we going to explain this? I said, well, um, we can say I'm pregnant. And um, I remember having dinner with Anna Ford, who was one of the famous five, was one of the famous six. 
and Mark Boggs, her husband, and um, I said to them, well, you know, I couldn't do breakfast television because I'd got pregnant. And Mark Boxer said, haven't you ever heard of birth control, Esther? <laughs> and I thought, mm, I haven't really thought of the answer to that one. Anyway, no, so that was the truth. That was turned the truth. Turned out to be a good I... call, Esther. Let's be honest, turned out <laughs> to be a good call. Um, Tim Marshall's written in by email, Esther, and I don't know if you've got a view on this. He's saying that uh, undoubtedly huge strides have been made uh, in front of the camera and indeed in some of the creative roles, but still we don't see that many women in the, in the technology side of things. Is there anything you feel strongly about that or something we could do about that? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yes, it, it, it is extraordinary how slow we've been in um, using women in every branch of television. And uh, I think for years and years and years, you know, uh, uh, well, education for, for mm. young women, Middle class young women used to be in embroidery and and French, wasn't it? And flower arranging, and I think um, that sort of lingers on in the reluctance to accept women as engineers. My father was an electrical engineer working in television. Working, he joined the BBC under Reith. Oh, I shouldn't admit that because Nadine wouldn't like that either. She says that the trouble with the BBC is too many people from Oxbridge whose fathers worked for the BBC. Well, well <clears throat> and as did mine, Esther, as you know, so we're both guilty on that one. Absolutely. Well, yes, it is, it is um, a madness. And um, I think, I mean, here's the thing. I don't know whether you saw the, the brilliant, brilliant, brilliant Dimbleby lecture, but the number of women who were involved in the development of vaccines is wonderful oh, and sorry. i think you know it's an object lesson to people throughout the scientific community and engineering and all the all those trades look how good women can be if they are given the opportunity i think you're right to go back to the education esk i'm not sure how many people are how many young girls are encouraged to to learn the skills at kind of a level that, that you need to then move on into the technical side so we've got a young lady here uh, a miss claudia Master Antonio, and she's asking a series of conversations, but essentially she's saying, uh, in a nutshell, what's the best piece of advice you can offer to new entrants coming into the business? And particularly, how should they break into those still more difficult areas? She's talking about actually um, uh, format creation and invention, which uh, I'm not sure she's right, but, but, but there's certainly women, I know very good women in that area, but maybe it's still a bit more dominant. What do you do if you find an area where there's not many women? As I said, the uh, opportunities offered a minority depend on the generosity of the majority. And um, I think you've got to find the men who are guarding the threshold. And um, it's always helpful to make them laugh. That's a very good point. That's, that's a very good point. That's within your skill set. <laughs> I do recommend making them laugh. I think it's a very good point. There's an old friend of yours contacting you or an old uh, acquaintance, John Kay, and he says, Hi, Esther, I will always remember doing work experience with you on that slide. Thank you and how much I enjoyed that. Uh, what would you do to increase the representation of people with disabilities on TV? Would, would a disability channel be, and I suppose more generally, Esther, 
is that the right answer? Is Woman's Hour the right answer? Is a disability channel the right answer? Is a black TV channel the right answer? How do you go about it? Well, I think Strictly is the right answer. Yes. Um, oh, and yes. I think, I think Watchdog is the right answer. I think um, what you've got to do is have a role model who's really, really good at it. And that will cause other people to rethink their own prejudices. And I think that is important. I mean, I admire Woman's Hour, um, but I, I don't actually think that that is the answer. It can be a place where you hive off the people you don't want to employ and say, well, you've always got that arena, which we've designed for you, but stay there. Yeah. Don't encroach on my land. Get off my in land. In the real bit. Yeah, on the big bit. But if you have a look at Rose on Strictly, you know, um, it's. I think people are already saying how much she has encouraged people to learn and employ sign language because she's so good at it. And well, through and, the roof. Numbers uh, through the roof. I think I think she's a most fantastic role model, and you know, where she goes, I'm sure others will follow. Do you know, Esther, I've sat there this autumn, and I'm not a big Strictly fan, Judy has it on every week, and I kind of watch it the newspaper, but um, I've just been almost moved to tears by, by you know, the BBC hasn't got it right all the time at the moment, but that is public service television at its absolute best, that is entertainment of the highest quality, making a socio-political point that you couldn't make in any other way. And I think she's a marvel, that girl. I hope she wins, uh, although there's some other very good dancers in there. But what she's done for disability in general and, and deaf, deaf uh, people in particular is just astonishing. Uh, and, and, you know, power to her elbow. I hope she goes from strength to strength. Um, can I just say, uh, Phil, and thank you very much, by the way, to Phil and his team at uh, RTS London for organising all of this. We haven't mentioned them. But Phil's also just sent me a note. The RTS does have several bursaries for scholars from poorer backgrounds, specifically covering technology, as well as journalism and production. And you can find details of all of that on the RTS website. The RTS is actually a very good organization, A, for finding your way into and finding out about the business. I think Phil will confirm they still have the student membership for about 10 pounds a year or something, and you get all the benefits you would as a full paid member but they do also run a lot of bursaries and have a lot of information about other bursaries. So if you feel that you're in some way excluded and you don't know which door to push on, the RTS website's not a bad place to start. Um, Esther, uh, we're coming up to eight o'clock. Uh, we've gone through the questions on the thing. I tell you what I was just going to ask you. You did have a go at uh, back, so, um, and, and I take your point asking the same question 12 times and maybe shouting the same question at somebody, uh, and I'm not thinking of Piers, obviously, at all, but uh, when they won't answer. He, um, he, he's a great journalist, though. He's a great broadcaster, yeah? Jeremy? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I, second to no one in my admiration for Paxo, but I'm just sorry that he has sort of set up the school of Paxo, not on purpose, but he's got so many others who have picked up his uh, concept of asking the same question rather a lot of times, yeah. because here we go back to what Hugh Weldon taught me, which was your viewer is 
has maximum intelligence. Your listener has maximum intelligence. Your listener knows exactly what we're doing. When you repeat a question and when you say it a third time, you're making your point. You have made it absolutely clear, both to your interviewee and to your audience, that this person is avoiding answering. So move on. Uh, uh, because it's say- really an- annoying for your listener, who knows what you've done and knows what is happening, just to be stuck over and over again like a hamster in a wheel because you hope to win the next RTS award or uh, BAFTA. <laughs> but you don't, but you don't get the answer, as you pointed out. You don't get the answer. And by the and way, you don't get the answer. You don't get it. Unless no. it should be thought otherwise. I'm a huge admirer of Piers. I love watching in the morning. And for all of us, some very good people on there now, it's just not quite the same without that free song of waking up to Piers ranting about whatever it is. Because let's be honest, there's a lot going on in the world at the moment that needs a bit of ranting. You're, you don't agree, I think. You're not a ranter. Well, it's not that. It is that your sound dropped out just as you finished that sentence and I didn't hear the end of it. Tell me again. I, I was just saying, uh, uh, I, uh, I, I kind of, I used to get up in the morning, watch Piers and Suzanne. Suzanne, they're so balancing it so beautifully. Uh, but I love to hear Piers saying, no, come on, that's nonsense, Minister. What? Uh, and I kind of right. slightly miss it nowadays. Mr. Morgan is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I have been interviewed by the Dr. Jekyll Piers Morgan on his life stories, and you can't find a more empathetic, charming, winkly interviewer. And there is a programme where he really does get revelations from his interviewees. Very good point. But he knows, he knows perfectly well that the fisticuffs that he was responsible for on breakfast television, and maybe again when he goes to talk television, is what um, was putting the ratings up because unfortunately or fortunately there is an audience for um, wrestling in mud. Public hanging. (laughs) I call it wrestling in mud. But but, um, Richard Maidley is coming along. He's a sort of apprentice Piers Morgan, isn't he? And now that he's come out of the Welsh castle, um, who knows what what kind of twosome he and Susanna will make. And may I say, Susanna Reid is another example of a very strong forensic interviewer. Um, and I think that she would be another excellent Andrew Marr, but I think she, I think she um, is very happy where she is. I think she's on the ITV side at the moment, but you're right. And, and as a team, they were so strong because it, it really was not good cop, bad cop, but he would be, and, and she'd just come in with that. Yes, that aside, can I just ask you this particular point, Minister, and she'd have it spot on. I'm a huge fan as well. Uh, and you're so right about life stories. Did you see the Kate Garraway uh, this weekend? Uh, Absolutely. Piers interviewing Kate. I mean, just just really, really good television. Isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, there, and, and, and there's another woman. There's another woman. Masterful yes. broadcaster. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a good point to end on. Uh, Phil, are you comfortable with us rapping about this point? I'm just asking my producer. Uh, or do you have any other questions coming? Last one, Bath, Carol Stone. Well, Carol, how are you? Uh, lovely to hear from you. Both Esther and I know you well. Uh, who is left that you'd like to interview today? Is there anybody that you've never had a chance to interview and you'd like to talk to now? Yes, yes, yes. Who? Years ago, I said to Alan Yentob, whom I'm on very good terms with, in spite of the fact that he axed that slice. 
knowing how uh, friendly he was with Mel Brooks, I said, please, can I meet Mel Brooks? And um, he said, yes, of course, Esther, I'll arrange that. Diddy, diddy heck. Now I've read Mel Brooks' wonderful autobiography, which is so misunderstood by the sourpuss critics, because Mel is sending himself up all the way through. But uh, it's such a funny book. And I, more than anything, I would like to sit down with that 95-year-old and just listen to him describing. Yes. And the one big lesson in that book, um, he was actually showing a preview or, or maybe some sort of cut version of a, a, a section of the producers. It's a miracle that wonderful show, wonderful film was ever made. But anyway, and he showed it to one of the moguls, be it Jack Warner or somebody, somebody of, of that ilk, who said, get rid of that curly head man with his blue eyes. Yes, meaning, yes. Yes, Gene meaning Wilder. Gene Wilder. And Mel said, uh, oh, absolutely, he's out. I'll cut him out, you won't see him again. Because he said the secret with bosses is immediately agree with them. No matter how mad it is, no matter how off the wall it is, no matter how it would destroy your artistic masterpiece, if you follow their advice, agree. Agree instantly. Write it down, take notes. And then when he or she is gone, rip yeah. the bit of paper off, throw it in the bin, he will never remember. I, I, I saw that, I, I saw him talking about that on interview. And of course, who got the interview, Esther? said Alan Yendov was flown to LA to get the interview. Esther, it's been an absolute treat. It's one. It's my early Christmas present. It's so lovely to see you. I haven't seen you all through lockdown. Um, very nice to see you. And you have a wonderful Christmas and a happy new year. And keep keep flying the flag and doing the good work. And uh, next you, time DG you. comes up, just have a think. Just have a think. When, when Tim <laughs> Baby decides to move on. Thank you all very much indeed for being with us. A very happy Christmas to RTS and all RTS members and everybody else watching. And uh, let's hope we have a good new year, all of us. The RTS London Podcast.